From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Forget Rocky Top. It was a rocky night for Tennessee last Saturday as the Gators went to Knoxville and crushed the Vols 47-21. In a dominating performance, Florida was more than happy to accept the six turnovers that Tennessee volunteered and got the Orange and Blue to 1-1 one one in the SEC. Now comes a huge test with lots of hype as Dan Mullen will take his new team to Starkville to play his old team. On today's show, We'll cover all things football and touch on the news from Basketball Media Day with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, defensive end Elijah Conliffe shares stories ranging from his viral signing day stunt to his love of Marvel Comics. But first, Florida proved pretty clearly that they're further along than Tennessee at this stage, but what does that mean in the bigger picture? To begin our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we began by asking the guys how big of a statement the Gators made at Neyland Stadium. Well, I mean, I think it was a, a positive momentum builder because, you know, they had that early season loss against Kentucky, which, you know, in retrospect, certainly doesn't look as bad as it did two weeks ago. And uh, they went up to Knoxville, which is always, you know, all those the Gators have obviously uh, owned this series for most of the past two decades. I mean, it, they lost their last time up there. And, you know, first year coach, a new group of players, you just don't know how they're going to respond in their first road test. And they really took control of the game, Adam, in the first quarter. But what, 10 minutes in, Neyland Stadium was was really quiet, as quiet as I've ever seen it that quickly. And uh, the Gators cruised from there. And I don't know if it's a huge statement. I think the opportunity to make a statement is more against Mississippi State, but it certainly would have been kind of a step back and maybe you have to question, okay, how good is this team losing to a Tennessee team that had not particularly looked well before the game? And obviously in that game, the Gators outclassed them. I mean, it, when you look at the SEC early going, you know, Tennessee and Arkansas appear to me at the bottom. I think we're still trying to figure out where the Gators stack up and they'll find more about that in Mississippi State, but I just thought, Adam, it was a win they needed to kind of get some momentum going into this meat of the schedule. You know, you got to remember, it's at Mississippi State. They come home against LSU, then what, at Vanderbilt, then Georgia. Uh, this is not going to be an easy next month for Florida, so, so winning at Tennessee was a nice way for them to launch into it. Well, I think it's like anything else, it has to be put in context. I think going in, when we were talking about the the Kentucky game, and how good Felipe Franks is. I think we may how, how good Felipe Franks looked. Excuse me. I think uh, we also said consider the competition, Charleston Southern. You read some of the stories the next day out of Knoxville. I mean, uh, John Adams, really respected longtime rider there. He's he's wondering if they're gonna if they're gonna win a, a game in the Southeastern Conference, in which they didn't. This was their tenth SEC loss in a row, mm. which is incredible that we're having this conversation. But now, having said that, this game wasn't close. Adam, Florida's forcing turnovers. They're converting turnovers. I think I think it's important to note the six turnovers are one thing. But the offense took advantage of those turnovers. You're talking about six touchdown drives. Five of them were four plays or left. Three of them were one player, le- one player less. Another was two plays. So uh, there were some efficient things going on in that game. And 
if indeed what we do know is that we had this conversation is florida or florida and tennessee in similar situations well we know they're not and thank god for that <laughs> so if florida is that much better than tennessee they went up there and showed they were that much better than tennessee and i i do think that's a positive that's an absolute positive and i, I again i'll repeat what i said last week and week when they won that first game dan mullen uh emphasizes positive celebrate the wins that's a, that was one that they needed to celebrate and you saw there was some cool video of them sitting up there with their with their fans in the in the Neyland Stadium stands after the game singing the alma mater and what have you so they enjoyed that they need to build on it and uh, use that confidence to to take into their next game yeah it's 14 out of 15 against Tennessee which is pretty remarkable when you consider uh, the history of that rivalry and one of the ways that they won at Tennessee was with their defense I think that's so important to point out that the defense was huge in this game and, and started to resemble more of what we've come to expect from Gator defenses in the the recent past and you know I you could argue it's to the detriment of the offense because it's not letting them run a lot of plays because of what defense and special teams are doing but as far as where Florida can be successful right now and find ways to win it looks like the answer may be in that defense and that special teams. Yeah, I mean, special teams has been a factor since the first game, and uh, it's much improved that that was an emphasis of Dan Mullen and his staff, and it's paid immediate dividends for this Florida team. But the defense has, has been kind of a work in progress. You know, they, they had that shaky game against Kentucky uh, against the run, and you wondered how tough they could be. Dan Mullen basically challenged them after that game to be more physical. And I think the last two weeks against Colorado State and then at Tennessee, I think you've seen a more physical approach on defense. And, you know, we can't overlook the return of C.C. Jefferson and David Reese into that either. These are two of the veteran leaders on that unit. And, you know, Jefferson missed the first two games. Reese missed the first three games. And David Reese, uh, you know, he led them in tackles uh, at Tennessee, made his mark right away in that first quarter with that huge hit on uh, Joy Garantano. The Tennessee quarterback knocked his helmet off, and he was in the middle of a lot of plays throughout the game. And I think they're, they're taking positive steps. They're getting some work from their ends. You know, some pass rush uh, is starting to show up. Ja'Kai Polite had the big hit uh, that led to Reese's fumble recovery that led to a score. Luke Ankrum made a big interception. You know, he's a guy that we haven't really talked a lot about during his time here, but that was a big play that helped set the tone. So they're getting contributions from a lot of guys. Certainly the secondary is, has come along the last couple of weeks since Marco Wilson's loss. I think, you know, CJ Henderson is clearly the leader back there along with Chauncey Gardner Johnson, but we're seeing Brad Stewart, Donovan Steiner, some of those young guys, a trade Dean, we're seeing those guys start to look more comfortable out there and that's only going to help the unit overall so I, I think they're they're making some progress there defensively I think they're getting more used to Todd Grantham's system and uh, again it's going to get tougher each week starting with Mississippi State and quarterback Nick Fitzgerald we all know that he's going to be a, a difficult task for the defense uh, on Saturday. So Florida Mississippi State on its surface not a lot to it but You've got this whole other angle of Dan Mullen going back to Starkville and also Scott Strickland going back to Starkville for the first time in a football sense. So it's really about the uh, the return of the former Bulldogs now wearing orange and blue. And, and the question that I have, uh, you know, that I think is interesting about this is what effect does it have on the game? It's going to drive all the stories and the headlines, but does it have a tangible impact on the game? What do you think? 
Well, the biggest tangible impact is the uh, inside trading knowledge that the coaches will have for each other. I mean, it's Dan Mullen. We'll throw Scott Strickland out. Not that it's not important to him. Certainly this is important. And talking to him, he, he's going to care more about winning this game probably than any game all season. But Dan Mullen knows all those players. Billy Gonzalez knows a bunch of those players. John Hevesy knows a bunch of those players. Nick Savage knows a bunch of those players. Uh, all these guys came here. And there's a lot more. There's other people in the support staff that are that, that work behind the scenes that are going to know about these players. So there's something to that when it comes to game planning, what they think they can get around with. And certainly there's things that uh, Dan Mullen knows um, in the monster he created in Nick Fitzgerald, the quarterback, that maybe can work to Florida's advantage. Now, having said that, Nick Fitzgerald is going to play in the National Football League one day. That guy's terrific football player. Uh, I just really liked what uh, what Mullen said in the bigger picture of what it all means. When they run out on the field and there's booing, I love that Mullen, you know, thing Mullen said, but they asked him, do you think he'll be booed? He's like, what do you think? Of course he's going to be booed. Um, Which he really uh, shouldn't, right? Like, given what he did for that program, they really shouldn't boo Mullen. No, and when you think about what they were, the nine, they, he almost, what was it, They 25 games over 500, he almost absolutely uh, flipped that around from in his nine years from the previous nine years before that. Right. Uh, so once that pregame stuff is, is out of the way, it's a football game. And that's where the other stuff I've spoke about comes into play. And that is real. That is real down and distance kind of intel that will that should help Florida. That's certainly some kind of advantage. Uh, having said that, we, I talked about um, there were some guys who were in the Florida office that were in Tennessee's office last week. Uh, uh, you know, Mike Rump, obviously the defensive tackle coach being one of those guys. So um, I don't know how much that helped. Just like there was that Florida had a system, assistant coaches who were at Tennessee last, last year. I'm not sure how much that helped either. So once the whistle's blown, once the ball's kicked off all of the, the pregame storyline and all that stuff. And it's a great one. Let's be honest with you. This is really rare that a coach leaves a school in a conference and is goes back to play in his, in that very same stadium the next year. That doesn't happen a lot. So uh, uh, it's a really it's a really cool story. One of the best in the SEC, not uh, one of the best in the country this week. One of the best in the SEC this season. We should enjoy it and embrace it. And once the game gets started, they're going to be playing football. In terms of what we'll see on the field, what do we expect from this matchup? Well, I mean, we saw obviously Mississippi State got handled pretty much. We saw Mississippi State get pretty well handled by Kentucky, which surprised a lot of people. But you mentioned Nick Fitzgerald. I mean, it starts there and the kind of dynamic quarterback that Gator fans are hoping Dan Mullen can build in Gainesville. Yeah, you know, Nick Fitzgerald, I mean, I was studying up on him today and a couple of things surprised me. First of all, he's got 16 100-yard rushing games in his career, wow. which, is not, which is not only the record for an SEC quarterback, it also leads all active FBS players. So there's not another player in America who has as many 100-yard rushing games uh, as Nick Fitzgerald. So first of all, you're going to have to find a way to prevent him from getting out on the edge and turning the corner because once he does, uh, he's a dangerous threat. Todd Grantham, who got a real good look last year as Mississippi State's defensive coordinator, obviously he was going up against Fitzgerald in the offense every day in practice and he sees him as an NFL-type quarterback, a guy who can run and pass. We talked about all those rushing yards he has. He also only he's only 18 yards short of 5,000 for his career. It's kind of interesting. Uh, you talked about the Mullen factor. There's only two other quarterbacks in SEC history who have uh, 35 career touchdowns passing and rushing. 
And both of those other guys, Tim Tebow and Dak Prescott, also worked under Dan Mullen. So uh, when it comes to the dual threat quarterback in SEC history, Mullen's fingerprints are on three of the best ever. One of those are Nick Fitzgerald. And you can just tell by talking to Florida's defensive players the last couple of days, listen to what they have to say. He's at front and center of what they see as, you know, the biggest factor in this game. If they can somehow neutralize him the way Kentucky did and really put him in a lot of throwing situations and don't let him, I think he only had 20 yards on 16 carries against the Wildcats. That really shut him down. If Florida can have a similar performance defensively and force him to throw more than run, I think you got to like Florida's chances. But what really makes that offense go is when he when he starts finding seams in the defense and making big plays with his legs, and then they start thinking about running, and then he he drops back and throws one. So it's a it's a tough situation to face for an opposing defense, and and Florida has uh, Nick Fitzgerald on their mind for sure. Don't look now, but just around the corner, basketball is about to get started, which means it's Chris's favorite time of year. And Basketball Media Day took place earlier this week to start building some of that hype. So, Chris, tell us about uh, what we heard from from both coaches as they had a shared platform to talk about the season. Uh, Subject near and dear to my heart, Adam. Thank you. Um, It's year four for Mike White. It is year two for Cam Newbauer. If you're going to a women's basketball game this year, Adam, um, you need to bring a roster because uh, that is a completely rehauled team. I mistakenly used the word rebuild, and uh, Cam Newbauer, correct me, because we, we use build, Chris. So, uh, <laughs> they, yes, they are building. They are not rebuilding, but at the same time, there are two scholarship players from last year's team that played. Wow. That, of course, the uh, Funda Nakasoglu and uh, Delisha Washington. Third player, Stephanie Brower, but she was a walk-on who played 42 minutes. After that, you got – a handful of players that sat out, whether for transfer reasons or injury reasons. Uh, they, they got some some instant uh, transfer players that that'll be here to play right away. Some JUCO players. Uh, so this is a this is a going to be a team of unknown uh, circumstances. I would think would be a good way to put it for the for the women's team. Uh, one person that we need to keep an eye on, uh, Kiara Smith, goes by the name Kiki. She's from Maryland, but uh, went to the uh, same high school as Irving Walker. Having said that, she was a top 20 uh, prospect when she came out of high school a couple years ago. And uh, she's going to be, she's a 5'10 sophomore guard, and she's going to be a player who may uh, certainly give them some some punch along with uh, Funda and Delisha on the perimeter. And we'll see how that goes as uh, they start practice on Friday. Also starting practice, of course, Friday are the men who I've spent a lot of time with this offseason in their in their preseason workouts. And um, some good news on the front of uh, uh, for, for them. Obviously, last year, one of the biggest storylines was the lack of productivity and lack of bodies in the front court. And Chase Johnson was one of those guys who got hurt early in the season, uh, played only four games before they just had to shut him down with a second concussion. He got hurt, had a had a, a cervical contusion. They were calling it during the off season. It kept him off the floor for a, a month. So stuff kept happening. This this is kid. He was cleared last week to to start going full go. He had a he was off the court and bouncing around. He's a really athletic, really long kid who I think can help them in the long run. He'll be a redshirt freshman. He got a, a medical waiver for last season. He had his second practice on Tuesday after media day. So uh, they're, they're slowly getting their, their front court guys back. Gorjak Gak is still rehabbing from knee surgery he had in April. They fully believe he'll be ready for their season opener. And then there's Isaiah Stokes, who missed all last season, 
following knee surgery for something that happened to him his senior high school. So uh, he's trying to get back. He's lost about 40 pounds. This is uh, as skilled a big man as they've had here in the last 10 years. He just needs to uh, get in game shape because he's not there yet. He needs to probably lose another 15 or 20 pounds to get where he needs to be. But um, other than that, you're talking you're talking about some um, perimeter firepower with Jalen Hudson back, with Kayvon Allen back. Freshman by the name of uh, Noah Locke is going to be – he's probably the best shoot first-year shooter they've had here since Michael Frazier. Andrew Nemhard and Michael Kuro are going to battle out the point guard spot. I anticipate uh, Nemhard, who was a Michael, who was Mike White's first five-star signee, is probably has the inside track for, uh, for that job. Um, it's going to be a very fun team. Uh, Mike White is certainly ingrained here now that he's in his fourth season. He's got a new coach in Al Pinkins. He came from Texas Tech. He's handling coaching the big guys. So uh, there's some things that are the same about this team and some things that are going to be different about this team. And I'm looking forward to both watching them and talking more about them in the coming weeks. For this week's PAT, I want to discuss something that has got the sports world up in arms, and that is the NFL's crackdown on roughing the passer penalties and the question of, can we hit quarterbacks anymore or no? Chris, Scott, what do you guys think? How can the NFL fix this problem? Because now you've even got the quarterbacks themselves, like Ben Roethlisberger, commenting and saying this is not really what football is all about. I've seen some highly entertaining uh, uh, things on Twitter, memes of, here's the new way you sack a quarterback, and you <laughs> see a guy coming up and, and, and kissing him, or another one got going up and, and a mattress comes in from the side of the screen and they drop the guy on the mattress. I, I mean, we can talk about this, but I don't really know that there's an answer or a quick fix to it. I mean, I was watching the, uh, the obviously the Clay Matthews game on, on Sunday. Um, it was on here in Gainesville and, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Redskin fan and everything, but I mean, <laughs> come on. That was what uh, we were taught when we played football as form tackling. Um, and now they have the rule and it, a rule is a rule. And every time they go to these, uh, these officials in the studio, you know, and usually they, they're really good at interpreting the rules and putting them in the layman's terms. And they changed this rule because of, because Aaron Rodgers got hurt last year because uh, he got the weight of a defensive player driven into his body. Well, I, <laughs> that's football, man. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's, that's the definition of football. And, these officials go to these camps uh, before the season during training camp or what have you and go over all their rule changes and points of emphasis and all that stuff. And the change in midstream seems seems like it's a little squirrely. But at the same time, it, this is we went through. Didn't we probably have on a podcast last year some talk about what's a catch and what's not? Right. Yeah, I think uh, so. If, if we didn't, maybe we had it the year before. But that's what this uh, this subject is right now. And I don't know how you could change it because it's 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 so arbitrary. Um, or I don't say arbitrary, but it's it's subject it's subjective is the better word. And yet at the same time, these officials seem to know that you know if you body drive a quarterback in, that's a penalty. Um, some of these other ones, I, I okay maybe that one has to stay the same. But some of these other ones, uh, I saw a couple in the Sunday night uh, Tampa Bay uh, Pittsburgh game where they just there was a little push here, and uh, you know I, <laughs> Booger McFarland was like, what are we doing here? And um, I don't think there's a definitive answer, but it's certainly someone that these guys got to get in some of these big boardrooms where they spend uh, millions of dollars uh, on these on these on these meetings and what have you and figure something out because they're taking away some of the great action that people tune in to watch football for. And nobody wants to see anybody get hurt. But um, what is football if it's if you can't hit a guy in his midsection 
and put them on the ground. I'm like, I'm going to play Joe Blow fan out there because in a lot of ways, that's what I am. I mean, I love the physical nature of the sport. You know, it, take, for example, what happened in the Gators game. There was that rush by Ja'Kai Polite when he sacked Jarrett Garantano. And I mean, you could see from my angle in the press box, you could see what was coming. He had a clear blindside hit on Garantano as he dropped back to pass. He hit him right as his arm cocked back and David Reese caught the ball in the air. I mean, those plays are kind of, that's what football is. I mean, but on the same flip the coin, I totally understand that you, you want the game to be safer if possible. I don't know how you do it. I don't know if there is a way to make the game a lot safer for the quarterback than to really drastically change it. And, you know, the what you said lead into this segment I thought was interesting because I hadn't heard that from Ben Roethlisberger. And I think, in you know, the NFL, I did see a story today, Adam, where they're actually meeting to discuss this glut of calls over the weekend mm-hmm. and trying to see if they can somehow – find a solution or find a middle ground. But I think when you have one of the NFL's, you know, best quarterbacks for really what, 12, 15 years now, Ben Roethlisberger, I think if he's saying, if he's almost speaking out against how the game is going, you know, that may have some weight more than, you know, your average fan who doesn't like where it's headed. Yeah. Fundamentally, we've talked about the way the game of football is changing as they try and address player safety issues. And I think this is one of those where we're realizing uh, there may not be a center of this particular Venn diagram. Some things you just can't quite circle. Uh, And this does appear to be one of them, trying to keep quarterbacks completely 100% safe and give people the football that they have grown to love. So we'll see how that evolves. One thing that, of course, evolves constantly is the content that Chris and Scott are producing over on FloridaGators.com and putting out on Twitter at GatorsScott at Gators Chris. They'll be doing it for you this weekend in Starkville, Mississippi. So make sure to check that out. Guys, thank you so much as always. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. While Florida's had a shaky track record in terms of offensive production in the last eight years, the one thing they've always been able to count on has been the defense. After a rough performance against Kentucky, Todd Grantham's unit bounced back with strong efforts against Colorado State and Tennessee. One of the keys has been the growth of a line, led by youngsters like Elijah Conliffe. We spoke to the sophomore defensive end to learn more about his story, but began by asking him to break down the dominating performance against the Volunteers. Well, first off, you know, just defense-wise, I know we all pretty much stepped up from, you know, where we were the previous weeks. You know, got a lot more aggressive up front. And, you know, on the back end, we were a lot lot tougher as well. Uh, Offense-wise, just moving that ball a lot more consistently. Uh, I can already see the offense is doing a lot a lot better. There were a lot of people questioning the defense after the first few games, wondering what happened to the, the Florida defense of old. What changed at Tennessee, and, and how much did you guys want to maybe answer some of the doubts out there about where you were at as a unit? Uh, pretty much what we focus on is pretty much just getting better every, every day of practice, and I think that's what really contributed to our success as a defense. Just really practicing hard again, and then the looks the scouts give, it really what helps us. Because if their if their O line is better than the you know opposing O line, you know we're gonna be very successful. You know. I want to talk about your story now, and, and a little bit about where you came from. So, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? I grew up I guess, a single parent home with mom, and I had I have a brother. And pretty much we just was moving around a few places. Then that's when we 
found living in um, Hampton, and that's pretty much where I that's where I was able to get scholarships and stuff like that. And my mom was able to get a nice stable job there. And my brother, he's he's like doing his thing. He ended up moving down to Florida, you know, just to get a better you know, opportunity you know, to play. How how influential were you on your brother in terms of what you were doing athletically, and and how much did he want to follow in your footsteps? Well, I would see him do like little things that I would do. Um, I know he always you know just give him little tips and stuff what he could do to make his game better. Because yeah, I I didn't have all the answers, but you know I knew a little something. So uh, anything I knew, I, I would try to give to him. And you know, I seen I've seen him work very hard trying to get to you know get the the college level. I seen him pull his grades up from where they were. So he's really working hard. So in terms of your relationship with football, when did you first start playing the game, and, and what got you really hooked on it? I started playing in middle school, eighth grade around there. I I didn't really do too good. I I was really I was really awful. So I ended up stopped playing for a little bit, and then my eighth grade year, yeah, they they um they ended up moving me up to JV. So I played JV a little bit. I started at nose guard. I was really successful there. And then that's when I moved to Hampton. And that's when they had me a defensive end. So middle school, I started. And then I just slowly just started progressing. And that when I maybe, I'll say that the JV year I played, that's when I fell in love with football. But my ninth grade year, that's when I, I say I knew this was, this was my path you know, to what I wanted to do. Were you always a bigger guy? Did they just automatically put you on the line just because you, you were bigger than everybody else? I had opportunities to switch my position. I, I guess I was scared. Just to try something else new. I was I was so so uh, accustomed to the line. I just went with the lineman, and I just got rolling from there. But I always wasn't a big dude. Last, uh, I think my ninth grade, I was two twenty five, and then I got moved inside, and I that's when I started putting on weight because I was like I, I don't want to get pushed around in there. Now, obviously, you attracted a lot of attention when you were playing in Hampton, as you noted, and a lot of schools wanted you. So, as you went through the the recruiting process, what made Florida the right place for you? I, I just feel like I felt really at home on a visit more than other places. It just really caught my attention. The players seemed pretty genuine. And so just talking to them, just having, just, I guess, fun with them, it, it just seemed like a place I would want to go. So I just, you know, I told my mom the day, I think the day of when we was on the plane, the plane I wanted to commit, but that, that plane ride wasn't too, uh, wasn't too friendly. I was, I was a little nervous. I was like, hold on. I said, I wanted to commit, you know, I don't know if this plane going to make it to our, <laughs> uh, our destination. But. Now, once you made that decision, I guess you told a lot of people because you had a, a very elaborate signing day announcement that included uh, guys decked out in jerseys for each of the schools you were considering and then ended with the giant <coughs> orange and blue confetti blast. How did you come up with this whole show and, and pull that off? Uh, I really, I didn't really tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone except my mom. My, my family knew. My family knew. And maybe one one or two friends may, may, might have knew. But I ended up getting with Bleacher Report. I didn't know they was going to do a video for me or not. So I asked through the question out there, and they said yes. I said, okay. So we started playing up videos. It was either do that or do, like I guess, like a game show. You know, like when the like contestants are behind like a curtain or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was going to be like that. So I was like, I, want, I kind of want, I want a lot more people involved. You know, cause a lot, a lot of people contributed to my success. So I, I ended up uh, doing the one with the confetti blast. I had, you know, try to get everybody in there I possibly could. And then, but what happened? I think we, we kind of gave it away. Uh, one of the confetti blasters fell on the floor. We had to sweep the confetti up really fast. <laughs> <laughs> so no one, the, the people with the confetti blasters didn't know what was going to come out of them. No. Oh, that that makes it really genuine. Then, so okay, you got a, you got a real pop out of that. That thing went viral. What was it like? Then really putting yourself on the map as people responded to to that video. I know people were, were just saying that they really liked it, you know, and saying 
that in general, you know, it's, it takes to feel good, you know, having to guess everybody in your video, your friends and family in the video, you know, people, you know, I guess, responding to it positively. I guess so. No live animal announcement for you. You didn't want to bring out one. You know, so that someone's done that. Someone had a live baby alligator. That was maybe a little nice. too too intense for you. Yeah, yeah that, that's a little. Yeah, that's a little too intense. <laughs> Just a little bit. So you came in as a freshman and you learned how to do things under a different staff, under Coach McElwain's staff. Then you have mm-hmm. a whole new staff that comes in, and after your first year, you got to learn how to do things differently. What have been the biggest challenges in that process for you? But pretty much uh, the biggest challenge is for me because the, the playbook and stuff came pretty easy for me. It was just, just getting where they wanted me to be, I guess, conditioning-wise and strength-wise. That was probably the hardest part for me because uh, it was a little – it was the summer, the off-season and summer conditioning. They were, they were a little tough for me. You know, I didn't quit and I, I kept going. I'm sure when you're going through transition like that, it's important to have mentors and, and people you can lean on. Which upperclassmen have been – the most important to you in terms of your development and, and why? I give maybe one, two, maybe C.C. Jefferson, Tiante Lewis, and then they're not really they're not really upperclassmen to me, but they're older than I am. But I, I'll say um, T.J. Slade and Kyrie because you know they're always you know beside me, pushing me, and trying to get me better. And so, and then Zach as well. BBK, you know, we brothers. Specifically, what do those guys do for you? Like, what, what do you go to them about, and, and how do they help you? Uh, pretty much, is I sometimes ask them questions. You know, just asking like, you know, how do you, you know, how are you doing this? Especially since they're all D linemen. At least the the last three I named were all D linemen, so they they really help me. I guess get my technique right. We stay after practice sometimes. We work on stuff like that, and then I know Ciante. Uh, yeah, yeah, CC too. Yeah, yeah. and then Ciante, you know, when we was working out. Through the offseason, he would just push me. And I just, I kept going, you know. He just, he really helped me out through the offseason. Whether it's on or off the field, what are some of the biggest lessons you learned as a freshman that have changed the way you approach something as a sophomore? All right, but first, first big thing is like, it gets money wise, you know, I gotta, I gotta be smart about money. <laughs> um, I guess my attitude as well. I guess I have to, I guess I have to get that a better positive mindset. And it's like the positive mindset, you know, things will, you know, happen possibly the way I want them to go. Just And then working hard as well. Uh, you got to keep pushing. Not, I don't think really anything else for real. It's just pretty much money and just my mind, mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, Coach Mullen talks a lot these days about Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk. Because I don't think you guys got the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing as much as he was hoping. So can, <laughs> you, can you explain why that is relevant to you and the guys on this team and, and what that means? Well, I feel... As if, you know, most of, I think all of us are pretty kind off the field, you know. You know, all of us are pretty respectable off the field. And, but, you know, he wants us to, you know, really transform into something else when we're on the field. He wants us just to go a lot harder, you know, go a lot harder on the field, just be aggressive, and just, you know, just really play relentlessly, you feel me? Mm-hmm. And, and you had a, an incredible Hulk moment of your own against Colorado State that got a lot of attention. <laughs> uh, can you take us through that forced fumble and and your response to it. All right, so pretty much it was my first play in. You know, I was just like, you know, just trying to get in, you know, trying to make some plays. But then he, coach called. He coach called it. What he called, and um, I went in, you know, did the play, and I seen the ball was on the ground. I was like, oh, so snap, you know. So <laughs> so and then I seen like the way the way it looks like everything just spread out. So I just I just jumped in and I, I was able to cradle the ball. I was like, oh, yeah, this this is mine. But as soon as I did that, I just felt like a pile of people just falling on top of me. I was like, oh, man. And I was just trying to get up. 
I was trying to get up and celebrate with everyone, you know, but I couldn't get up. And then, then I kind of got into my, uh, my back into my old high school ways. Huh? I used to just, you know, mess around, you know, after celebrating and stuff. <laughs> and then I just started rolling on the ground. <laughs> While we're talking about the Hulk, let's talk some Avengers because I know you were talking about you know they they maybe uh, they they dropped the Hulk down a little bit during the last Avengers. So I'm yes. gonna start with a spoiler alert here. If you haven't seen Avengers: Infinity War, uh, skip ahead this question. But I'm curious what you think is gonna happen in the next Avengers. How are they gonna beat Thanos and bring everybody back that uh, that disintegrated? You know, I'm kind of I'm, I'm a big fan of the comic book. So what I think is uh, they're gonna bring in Captain um, Captain Marvel. And then she's going to you probably get the stones back or you know, however she wants to do it or however they're going to take because I think I don't even make some changes from the comic book, you know, because the first who came down was the Silver Surfer mm-hmm. to the Earth. But, you know, so hopefully she just gets back, you know, everybody comes back in time using the time stone, hopefully. And, uh, and then I guess they're going to fight Thanos again. Man, you know, you know, your Marvel stuff, man. Who's your who's your favorite Marvel superhero? All right, that's that's a, that's a big question right there. Right, um, <laughs> I'll probably say. Either the Hulk or I might, I might have hold on, I might have a three. I might have a three piece right here. Okay. All right. So you got the Hulk. Um, I like. I really like. Hold on, I really like Wolverine. Uh, and then lastly, it, it could be non-Marvel. It could be. A, it could be DC too. If you if you want to go ooh. a different way. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Freezer for off of uh, Dragon Ball Z. Oh wow. Okay. Well, you you cover <laughs> you cover the, the whole spectrum there, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I'm a <laughs> All right, so let's bring things back to uh, to this week with a final couple questions for you. Obviously, it's a big game in Starkville and, and another big test for you guys. And then there's this whole other element there because of Coach Mullen and, and his recent past there. How much has that been talked about amongst the guys in the locker room, and, and what effect do you think that has on the game? Uh, we really don't talk about it too much in the locker room, but I know I know when we're in the meeting room, we talk about, you know, this week, you know, it has to be – we had to practice harder than last week. You know, this preparation is really what's going to take us. Either we're going to win the game or we're going to lose the game off our preparation. So that's what coach is preaching to us, you know. So we're practicing hard. And yesterday was a pretty hard practice. Today is going to be a pretty hard practice and so on, you know, throughout the week. From what you've seen on tape, what do the Bulldogs do well? And where are they most dangerous? They have a really good running back. Um, they pretty strong back. Um, their interior linemen are pretty good as well. So we just got to stay, you know, really uh, stout in the, um, in the middle. I guess of our defensive line, so it's no stuff like that. Well, we certainly hope that the preparation continues to go well. We thank you for sharing your thoughts on both football and, of course, uh, the Marvel Universe. Thank you very much, Elijah. (laughs) Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. The Dan Mullen Bowl kicks off at 6 o'clock on Saturday, live on ESPN and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Starkville.